Hi, and thanks for tuning in to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week, we feature an interesting, thought-provoking and clinically relevant conversation to enhance your speech pathology practice. Let's hear from this week's contributors. Hi, this is Nathan cornish Rayleigh speaking to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri people. As the Speak Up podcast grows, some former episodes remain especially relevant to practice today. So moving forward, we will periodically rebroadcast previous episodes and may include some updates to that information. This week, we're happy to bring you an episode that aired during season three on Eat, Walk, Engage, Delirium Prevention in Acute Care. SPA's Adult and Aged Care Project Officer, Nikki Giron, spoke with Professor Allison Mudge, clinical lead of the Eat, Walk, Engage program, and Norell O'Connor, speech pathologist and Eat, Walk, Engage program facilitator. We hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome to this week's Speak Up podcast. I'm Nikki Giron, Adult Aged Care Project Officer with Speech Pathology Australia, and today I'm speaking with Professor Alison Mudge and Narelle O'Connor. Alison is a physician and the Clinical Director of Research and Education in Internal Medicine and Aged Care at the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. She is also a Medical Research Fellow and is the Clinical Lead of the Eat, Walk, Engage program, which we're here to discuss today. Narelle is a speech pathologist and has been a facilitator for the Eat, Walk, Engage program at Rabina Hospital. Welcome, both of you. Thank you for joining me today. I'm so excited to speak to you both. Um, it's a shame we can't meet in person or being in Queensland, but uh, video chat is the ne- next best thing these days. Now, Alison, I let's let's jump into it. Alison, I have had the pleasure of discussing the Eat, Walk, Engage program with you previously because I've taken real inspiration from the concept of the program and the principles within it in my own practice. So a few years ago, my allied health team were really struggling along with everyone else, I think, um, in how to meet the, at the time, new aged care quality standards um, within our resource constraints. Um, so I won't say that that is entirely resolved. We all know the, the struggles in, um, in aged care. However, my team leader at the time said, Nikki, you need to check out Eat, Walk, Engage, which I did. I spoke to, spoke to yourself, Alison, and also Prue McRae, I think. Um, and it was like a light bulb moment for me. It, was, it really shifted my mindset in thinking smarter. And I thought, yep, this can be done. We can achieve um, great outcomes for health and well-being. Um, in, a, in a model that is a smarter way of working. So I'm so excited to speak to you. Um, could we start, could we start with, Alison, could you outline the inception of the Eat, Walk, Engage model and what it looks like? Yeah, thanks so much. And um, thanks for that lovely wrap. It's, it's lovely to hear that we've influenced people because it's always a little bit hard, you know, things grow organically. And I guess what starts as a as a little local improvement program, we, we really couldn't have foreseen that it would get as big as it has. And we've been very fortunate to have support to grow the program. So, um, yeah, so it's always nice to know that early ideas were seeding enthusiasm, you know, even a few years ago. But I guess that Eat, Walk, Engage um, really came from a passion to try to provide more age-friendly care because we know that Um, Older people are the fastest growing segment of our clinical population. Um, 
And we also know that they're really vulnerable to us actually doing harm through the processes that we use in the hospital. So um, it's an acute care model um, and it's really designed to try to get patients uh, home uh, with less hospital-associated complications and uh, ideally back to their own home faster. Um, it's founded in really 20 years of, of good geriatric research about what principles work um, to prevent complications and particularly the complications of delirium and functional decline. And we were really inspired, um, particularly by the Hospital Elder Life Program it, um, led by Professor Sharon Anui in the States. Um, but we were also keen to have something that was really adapted to our local context. And the design of Eat, Walk, Engage, um, I guess we can talk about the core principles and the design, but the design really came from, uh, you know, some pretty tricky experiences with trying to do quality improvement well and finding that we just weren't really getting traction. And so we really moved to a more structured way of doing things and using an implementation science framework. So the core concepts of, of Eat, Walk, Engage, so adequate early nutrition and hydration, early graded mobility and independence, and um, uh, meaningful social and cognitive activities have now really strong evidence base behind them as being part of, um, you know, a number of good evidence-based models to improve care of older people, both in hospital and out of hospital, actually. Um, but the magic is in trying to make those things actually happen in our busy, complex um, systems that involve many, many players. You know, hospitals are the most complex socio-technical organisations on earth, really, and there's a lot of different players, a lot of different agendas, a lot of different tasks, and older patients, and particularly older patient, patients with cognitive impairment, don't fit very nicely into a rushed throughput focused system. And that's why they accrue more harm than other patients. So really Eat, Engage is around trying to get those key principles into action through local tailored improvement strategies that really involve the team on the ward. So it's ward-based, it's a clinical support program rather than a clinical consultant program. So it brings... Um, assistance with doing rather than expertise in what to do. Um, and it, it has a number of core components that I can mm. talk you through briefly. I feel no, like I'm talking that's, a lot. I'm oh, a terrible it's, talker a lot, but I'll, 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 I'll get some of the information. No, that's fantastic. Across, and I love I hearing how um, it's adapted to the local context because I, I'm in a rural area and yeah. just... There is so much variability between locations. So to hear that, that it has that element, I can imagine yeah, that would yeah. make it all the more effective. Yeah. And, you know, the fascinating thing to me is that every ward is its own empire, right? Even within a hospital, you can have very different practices and cultures between two wards that are right next door to each other, um, which is really fascinating. And so going in with that kind of one-size-fits-all approach or going in with a protocol that experts have developed and telling people, what to do just is not a good fit for this kind of complex intervention and you know we're I guess we're really fortunate because there's a lot more evidence about how we might start to tackle complex problems in healthcare and and that's really where the field of implementation science has been really helpful for us and we're founded in um a specific implementation model called the integrated promoting action um 
on research implementation in health services. It's a huge mouthful, so we call it the IPARIS framework, which is a very widely used framework in healthcare. And it, it posits that the central element is this thing called facilitation. Facilitation just means making things easier, but facilitation refers really specifically to both a role and a set of activities. So investment in this idea that it takes energy to actually change complex behaviours of complex groups of people. It doesn't happen by chance. It requires an active force, which is facilitation. And that that will be the critical factor to get the evidence that we know works into action with the local people and in the local setting and that it's influenced by the and has to be adapted to the local people in the local setting. Um, and the people, I guess, are our patients as well as our staff. It's fantastic to hear you say as well that it started organically and it, and how it's built with the instigation of the iParis framework or and, and built up to be something so much more structured and have that research base. Um, and also I like that you mentioned culture because I feel like when I looked at your model, it was, yeah, the concept, the principles, but also a culture shift for me um, into looking looking at working in way of ways of working and perhaps that interdisciplinary approach. Yeah, yeah. And, and really that bringing a team together is so important. So the facilitator's role, so the first thing that they need to do is understand the needs on the ward and we, and we do that by listening first to patients. So we interview older patients using semi-structured interviews and we get an understanding of what that ward feels like to those patients, what makes it easy to walk or to, to eat or to have meaningful engagement, what makes it difficult. And we get a lot of really valuable information and suggestions, really constructive feedback from our older patients. And then engaging with the team. So very important that this is multidisciplinary and, and really the engine house for change is the is the multidisciplinary work group on the, on the ward. And they're a group that are volunteers essentially and they meet about once a month in at least the first year or two of the program and they listen to that information from patients but we also do some really structured measures that we could talk about if we've got time um, that shows us what practices are like on the ward and they and they integrate that with their own experience and that requires a lot of reflection and it sometimes requires some some pretty hard um, you know discussions between different groups on the ward about who thinks what's their responsibility um, but through that process we start to come up with a shared vision of what what is it that we'd like to improve to make this ward a better place for our older patients and and for us as staff caring for them and then really work towards that through small cycles of improvement and once we've got some change then we go back and think about it all over again and so we remeasure and we look for where the next gap is so it's a very much a continuous improvement process it's driven by the ward staff which is critical for sustainability but there's an investment in a resource that is the facilitator and there's also an investment as a carrot for that time that the team put in to reflection and thinking and caring about how they're caring for older people. The little carrot that they get is a half-time multi-professional assistant that starts a bit later in the program and is specifically dedicated to what those key improvements are. And that will be different on different wards and it will be different depending on what the existing assistant resources, allied health resources and so on are. But but there are some there are some carrots for participating, I suppose, and, and um, and there's this helping resource of the facilitator. 
Mm. And so can we go back to what it looks like to give people a better idea? You refer to the age-friendly hospital environment. Could And I understand that that might differ with context, but could you give us maybe either Alison or Norell an example of that? Yeah, so, so, we, so we might make changes at patient level or at ward level or even at organisational level. And they might be, so when we talk about the environment, the environment includes resources as well as the built environment. So at the patient level, that might be, do we have, you know, does this ward have the availability of pocket talkers for people who have hearing impairment? Simple things like that that are often not seen as anyone's responsibility. And then through to sort of ward level evidence-based environmental interventions like wayfinding and, and private spaces and um, meaningful engagement activities in spaces to make them meaningful for people engaged through. And then right up through to sort of hospital design and thinking about how we can, you know, bring bring carers into the space is a huge issue, obviously at the moment. Um, but I might ask Narelle to share a couple of specific changes that, that she, as a facilitator, was able to help with um, in Rabina and what things look like before and after those changes, Narelle. Yeah, I guess some examples I'm thinking from Rabina Hospital. Um, at a ward level, were doing things like changing the spaces, I guess, to be a little bit more inviting and a little bit more easy to manoeuvre. So we had these really busy corridors with equipment everywhere and people running around. And then we had these nice sort of sunroom spaces that weren't really getting used. So we did things like make them more inviting, making them more homely um, and encouraging carers and families to come in and use those spaces. Um, as well as that is the resources that came along with that. So. Um, we did a bit of a drive with the ward to get some really great resources in terms of, you know, books and activities and arts and crafts and things like that as well at a, at a ward level. Um, and at, I guess sort of, I guess organisational, maybe not quite, but we also tried to implement a regular education training, um, the Better Way to Care workshop. We had the lovely... Prue, Margaret, I think Prue and Margaret came. And, yeah, that was really great. And we sort of wanted that to keep going as a regular a regular training for everyone to be involved within the organisation. And that's really trying to in, influence that mm. um, cultural environment yes. as well. So we used some lovely um, resources from the UK called Barbara's Story that are really beautiful video depiction of what the experience of being in hospital looks and feels like for an older person with perhaps some mild cognitive impairment and some visual impairment. And they're really quite compelling resources for getting staff to put themselves more in the position um, uh, of the older person. So there's the care environment and the physical environment and just working on one without the other um, is also really problematic. So as Narelle said, to to make a nice inviting room but actually have none of your staff invite patients and carers to use the room, you're not going to get the same changes if you're able to do those two things at the same time. So it's often these iterative improvements. Often they sound like really small things, um, but if you can make a space, you can make the space inviting, you can put things in the space to do and you can make sure people 
value that space and welcome people to that space, then you're going to start to get uh, more mobility, more interaction, more social interaction, all the things that we know prevent delirium and functional decline in our patients. The model in that regard is so, so simple. What I love about it is it's so simple but so complex at the same time. Um, and the fact yeah. that it's consumer-driven, yeah. going back to that cons- consumer yeah. voice, which is so powerful and empowering for them, it's beautiful. Yes, and and it's, you know, I think that it is a really central component and pay, pe- older people tell us things that we just don't see because you're so embedded in the in the busyness of your work and your environment that it's very helpful to have someone and and they certainly tell me things when I'm there as an eat walk engage facilitator rather than a doctor that they would never tell me as a doctor things that they'll tell me about the environment and their experience um and I think uh, you know it's a really humbling part of the program um, we're very excited that this year we've actually created a statewide consumer advisory group as well. So that's just uh, recently got off the ground and they're going to be providing some higher level strategic advice to us as well about direction. So really very much trying to keep the older person at the centre. And oh, I was just going to add there, I think what's really great is having that consumer voice to bring people back to the why, I think, because often being on the ground, you're getting a lot of pushback from things that you're trying to implement. Mm. But having the consumer voice and those quotes and just, you know, what the patients are saying up your sleeve was so useful. I think it sometimes can really help. You know, there's often just those little turf issues between disciplines and I think um, the patient stories are very important for keeping us focused. Yeah, I was just going to reflect on the fact that as health professionals, we, and in a busy environment, we have our own agenda, but it doesn't necessarily reflect the agenda of the patient or, or what really matters to the person themselves, yeah. does it? Yeah. And, and, you know, that wording is lovely because that's, so there's a very big program in the, in the States, the 4Ms program. So mentation, mobility, medications, and what matters are the 4Ms that they're really trying to introduce globally as good geriatric care and it's a really nice distillation of some of the strong evidence-based interventions and really listening to what matters um, you know and and patients tell us what matters what matters is taking a little bit more time offering a hot cup of tea you know having having somewhere to sit in the sun and read the paper it sounds like these are sort of the icing on the cake but they're actually the cake from the patient's point of view aren't they that's amazing and um Narelle in terms of your role as a facilitator could you give us a bit more of an idea of what what your responsibilities are in that role yeah so I think you kind of end up becoming sort of the middleman for um a lot of what you're trying to implement and I think you kind of become it's really interesting I think as well being a speech pathologist um, as my other hat you kind of you learn so much more about the other professions OT physio didactics and especially nurses because I think as allied health we tend to really stick together so I think it's really that relationship building. So it's sort of getting to know what everyone's role is and then you start to realise there's so many grey areas in between <laughs> and figuring out as a whole how can we manage these grey areas? You know, there's so many things that 
you know, especially as allied health that we're recommending and we're trying to, I think like we've spoken about, we're working in our silos, but we all have the same outcome. So it's trying to bring everyone together once a month using that sort of patient voice. Not even once a month, you're there every week. So you're there just sort of trying to advocate for the consumers, for the patients and hear everyone's side, if that makes sense at all, I guess. And it's just, it was very eye-opening actually really getting idea of how the wards work. And I think even as species, we can be really guilty of coming in, doing our little consulting, doing our assessment, and then we're, we're gone. We're not there for the whole picture. So I think it's really bringing the whole picture to all the different um, stakeholders, I think. Mm. And you must have found that really enjoyable to work in that capacity. Yeah, Enjoyable and frustrating. It's a really challenging <laughs> challenge, isn't it, and, yeah. and I think, you know, the other thing is that, that you're sort of, you say that you're the middleman, but you're almost the puppet master behind as well. And so mm. you're often very invisible. And that's, um, you know, that can be uncomfortable as well, that you can... That, that you have to sometimes let people make mistakes and you have to sometimes watch the tension boil over a bit because if it doesn't mm. happen, you're never going to resolve that grey area as you talked about, Narelle. And yeah. it's, it's a very relational mm. job. We need people with a lot of self-awareness and ability to reflect and diplomacy mm. and curiosity to understand why people might mm. be taking that particular stance or, or practising in that particular way. So it really requires a very interesting mm. skill set. Yeah, yeah. You learn a lot about yourself very quickly <laughs> in a really good way. But I think because you've got this opportunity to take a step back and see the whole picture, which you don't often really get because you get to do things like the activity mapping, seeing what um, you know happens for the whole day on a ward. You get to do things like talk to all the res- uh, not residents, all the patients on the ward, and you get to sort of speak to all these different stakeholders. And then it's so easy for you to see what needs to be done but you can see how it's really hard as well for everyone else to come on board and see what needs to be done to help make the journey a bit easier for all oh, the patients. Oh, interesting. And so, as you said, that's mm. when the consumer voice comes into play to a large degree. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, there, there are multiple hurdles, but there's also lots of wins at the same time. So, yeah, a very rewarding experience. You know, we always find it so inspiring. Yep. We've we've struggled, of course, to get people together as often as we'd like to just because of the various lockdowns and things. But, um, mm. you know, our facilitators are recruited from nursing and all of the allied, all of the different allied health professions right. now around the state, but, but all okay. really driven by a passion for making things better for older people and putting a bunch of those people in a mm. room is just, is such a buzz and so... Exciting, I think, isn't it, Narelle? And and learning from your peers around their experiences, Mm. I think, is such a valuable part of our model as well. Yeah, yeah. And I think we all have so much to learn from each other. I mean, we all come with different expertise and it also makes you realise that we're not always sharing it that effectively at award level. Like we're really there just to do what we have to do, but we have so much to teach each other and learn from each other for the better outcomes of, you know. That would be so rewarding. Yeah, yeah. And trying to really Mm. shift from that task-focused culture and really model that shifting from a task-focused culture to a person-centred culture. You know, Mm. there's a lot that we Mm. talk about around that 
isn't there? But but actually trying to do that mm. in your daily practice when you're busy is very difficult to do because we have been yeah. taught to, you know, this is the people on your list and this is what you have to do for each of them. And so the tasks yeah. do have to get done, don't get me wrong, but we have to be trying mm. to do it in a way that um, uh, doesn't forget the person as well. And there mm. are, and, and like you say, that's not about just spending longer or working harder. That's actually about recognizing mm. things that maybe you can let go of and somebody else would be willing to take up or, or, you know, reducing that duplication mm. and things. And, mm. and certainly sure. getting the team more on the same page is, is something all mm. of our patients tell us is so important is that they're getting the same mm. message from different members of the team. And it's actually one of the measures we use yeah. to see whether, whether we're sort of making inroads with teamwork is is what patients are saying about messaging consistency of messaging from the team yes and you do hear time and time again of patients generally being frustrated with being the told told the same thing over and over or told different things by different staff members um so that sounds fantastic um you mentioned the working more efficiently and who is doing what I'm very interested in the delegation aspect the is it multi-professional assistant and that role yeah I can talk about our experience um about the delegation of tasks specifically yeah so we had a yeah we had a really good we call it MPA um and a team that worked quite well in delegation but really I mean it did tend to fluctuate but Basically, this sort of falls under the three pillars of eat, walk and engage. But what we tried to really focus on was actually targeting, say, like a morning tea group or a lunchtime group or something like that, which sort of covered all of those three pillars. So then the physio would be able to refer, you know, say Betty to be able to go to the lunch group because that way she would get an extra, you know, certain amount of steps or a walk in that day. And then she would be sitting out in the chair for a portion of the day. And then the dietetic assistant might flag a few extra patients that she was reviewing that day who would also be able to then to sit out for lunch and then would maybe eat a bit more. And then that could maybe be fed back to the dietitian. And same with the OT. So it sort of would all work together like that, say, within the morning when you're having handover, those um, patients would be flagged. So there's a How few things to unpick there around, yeah. you know, so it is so it is really dependent. So the team have to take responsibility and this yeah. is, you know, a referral model. So, yeah. so this is where good team communication. So we try not to start this role until we've really got the team focused on what it is that they're trying to improve and how they're going to do it because otherwise, I mean, there's infinite mm. needs. So they'd just get sort of random referrals, I suppose. Um, mm. and, and I really like what you say then, Narelle, about that two-way. So it, it's it, the MPA isn't just an effector arm. They're also bringing really valuable information back to the team about how things went and what people ate or how far they walked mm. or whether they're different today or whether they're worried about them. And they mm. really become a very mm. valuable member of the multidisciplinary team. So, so it's this mm. two-way street as well. Um, yeah. and, and really focusing, as you say, on on high yield activities where they might be working with a number of mm. patients at once because that's then how you get some efficiencies out of the program. Mm. Um, so so they're, I think they're really yeah. key 
points around the role um, and the role is mm -hmm. carefully trained. They have a workbook that they mm -hmm. uh, learn some core skills from and then do some work shadowing with allied mm -hmm. health professionals, but also with an experienced mm -hmm. assistant who's worked in the program. Um, and they also oh, now have excellent. a monthly professional development program with peers all around the state so that mm -hmm. they're getting continuing mm -hmm. education as well. So there's a lot of support yeah. wow. uh, built into the program for the facilitators and the mm -hmm. MPAs. I was just going to add that um, it sounds a lot a lot easier than it really. It took a really long time to get, I think, people thinking about why, the why are we doing this? Why are we getting our patients up and why are we getting them together for lunch? Or why are we even referring in the first place or delegating those tasks? So I think it's very easy for staff at the beginning to be like, oh, so can you just sit with so-and-so because they're a really difficult patient today and we don't want to deal with them. I think it's really always coming back to the why are you doing this? Um, yeah, that's that's amazing. And when we talk about delegation, we often reflect on the training that is required for the person that we're delegating to. However, I love you pointing out that it really starts at that level of the health professionals and the team and, and the focus of, of why at the outset. So we're really looking for a brief mm. delegation rather than expert depth. So some delegation models are uh, sort of partial HP substitution. So you try to train someone to a, a, a higher scope of practice, whereas this is really about trying to have someone who's very older person-centred and able to perform a whole breadth of tasks across these key areas, eat, walk, engage, um, rather than trying to substitute um, expertise. So uh, mm. it's different to some of the other delegation models that have been developed, but of mm. course still requires both the professionals, and, and this is nursing and medicine can refer, as well as allied health professionals. So they need to understand the scope and the assistant needs to understand the scope. And that's quite an improvement project in itself, isn't it, Norella? Yes. Well. I think one, once it's working well, you know, the, the staff on the ward, you know, just value the that extra pair of hands so much. And I think you've just answered my next question. I, I wanted to ask Narelle, what were the components of the MPA role that constitutes mealtime support and communication support? So I'm not sure whether that's, a, you know, a specific uh, focus or if, if you've answered that, Alison, in terms of it's more about the breadth of the role. Yeah, I think it is the breadth of the role, but I think specifically, I think with my, my speech pathology hat on, I, it more sort of fell under when we're thinking about eat and engage. It really is that mealtime management, but more so from a nutrition point of view. Um, and also I think, you know, there's a lot that comes on the speech pathologist can sort of delegate tasks in terms of actually, you know, supporting with the mealtime, uh, not, not so much physically, but... Um, encouraging oral intake with others and that kind of thing. And then communication sort of fell under engagement. So OT and speech would probably have, there was a bit of overlap there where there'd be some patients who might require, you know, that extra time and the opportunity to, you know, if you don't use it, you lose it kind of thing, that engaging with others and having that opportunity. Mm. Fantastic. That's amazing. And so... Alison, you've spoken a little bit about the outcomes 
of the model, did you want to, and, and there's a wealth of research behind this, as you mentioned, and, and you've conducted a lot of research yourself. Did you want to embellish on those outcomes a little bit more? Yeah, look, I think our strongest evidence now is around specifically delirium prevention. So we, after we had developed the program on initially on one medical ward, and then we tested it on a vascular surgical ward to see whether it could work outside of um, an environment. It was actually my the medical ward I was a consultant on, so we were a bit unsure whether it was, you know, whether you could then transfer that to somewhere where you didn't really have any particular influence. So, so we saw some great results on the vascular surgical ward, and that led us to do a proper cluster randomised controlled trial called the Cherish trial um, that was conducted across four hospitals in southeast Queensland. And that very clearly showed a significant reduction, 47% reduction in the odds of delirium. Um, and so wow. this trend towards other positive outcomes like reduced length of stay, reduced discharge home, um, and reduced readmissions and mortality, but none of those reached statistical significance in that in that trial. But we were very excited uh -huh. by the direction of the findings and by the delirium. And that and that paper is just in under review at the moment. But um, but it fits mm. very nicely with the latest Cochrane review that's come out about multi-component um, non-pharmacological interventions for, to prevent delirium, which found across fourteen. Um, randomised controlled trials, a, a similar reduction, a 43% reduction in odds of delirium in that meta-analysis. So, so we're confident that we are using evidence-based stra clinical strategies in terms of the eat, walk and engage strategies, but we're also really confident that we've got an effective mechanism of getting those into practice, which is the other, you know, the implementation part of the program. And I guess now we're really excited because we've really shown we can scale that up. We've, we're now in 20 hospitals in, in um, around 40 wards around Queensland. Wow. And supporting facilitators, you know, right from Cairns down to Rabina. So the whole, the whole length of the Queensland um, state, really. And uh, so we're really excited because we're seeing some really positive findings across all of those we can't measure outcomes across all those sites but we measure these process measures like percentage of time spent um, active and mobile and the percentage of patients who are sitting out for their meals and we're seeing really pleasing improvements at, at scale across our sites so we're really we're very excited to see so we have we have an effective, scalable, transferable program, and most excited we've been we've been um, funded for the last three years by the state government to do that expansion, and that really has been a major plus for the organisations for mm -hmm. the HHSs to take up the model and has given us a real chance to expand at scale. So very exciting. Mm -hmm. mm. And to make that real difference for older people, um, that's that's incredible. And Narelle, do you have any examples of of what that looks like? Like even for an individual patient, or you know, reports of of that improvement. Some examples from where, yeah, at Rabina Hospital, yeah, um, there's a couple that come to mind, but we particularly on some of our gen med wards that we do have some patients that are there for quite some time and you do see deterioration but we had some really great opportunities um, with some 
patients who were there, say, for two weeks who would join um, our MPA every day and join with other patients every day who we were able to actually see improved oral intake, improved um, engagement on the ward and, and, and even getting up and about and being able to participate in some of, you know, just even doing some of the chores that were on the ward, like folding the sheets and stacking things and just having, which was never really actually done before. And even the nurses will report that they really, they got really good kicks out of that too. Wow. To see that functional improvement, that's very cool. And so if, if someone's listening and they are interested in implementing Eat, Walk, Engage itself, what would be their first step? Um, so we'd always recommend that they reach out to us. So um, through me or through uh, our Eat, Walk, Engage email address, easy to find on Google, but basically eatwalkengage at health.qltd.gov.au. I would stress that this is a program that does require resources and all effective delirium prevention programs do require resources. Um, and so it would be thinking about how you would advocate for the resources that are required. So how would you get that facilitator time and MPA time? Is that something, you know, when we started off, obviously it came out of some existing, we just stole some time from my role and Prue's role within safety and quality. Um, and, and then we got a small grant to support the first MPA and then we're able to argue based on the evidence that we created. We've now got a lovely evidence base, both for effectiveness and cost effectiveness that we can help with decision makers with making an argument. Um, if it's within Queensland, um, you know, we can certainly advocate with the state government for more sites within Queensland. If it's outside of Queensland, we'd really strongly recommend that you find other sites that would be interested and in, in trying to lobby your state government um, to support it for public hospitals. We haven't yet looked at forays into private hospitals and, and both the model and the resourcing would need to be different for that setting. And we're really interested in looking at what a model might look like for rural and remote hospitals as well. And I think that would probably need to be a, a research project, but we're really interested to hear from people. Um, so, so reach out to us by all means. Um, you can find out a lot about the program from things that we've published. They're fairly easy to find online, but, but I think it's that it's really understanding um, the support so we can bring support around how you learn to be a facilitator, the data measurements we use, you know, we've got a very refined set of measurements and, and uh, can benchmark then against other sites. So being able to do it within part of a statewide program lends us a huge, mm. I think, as a program. So, um, you know, the principles mm. are there. There's good evidence for these Eat, Walk, Engage principles and everyone should be doing what they can to do that. But, but to have an organised mm. program, you're going to need to think about the resources and, and using an existing proven model like ours would be a great start. Amazing. Thank you so much, Alison and Narelle, for speaking with me today and sharing your experience and, and insights. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for the opportunity, Nikki. No worries. Thanks, Nikki. Thank you. And to everyone listening, thank you for tuning in today. We'll be back with another Speak Up podcast next Wednesday. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Please be sure to subscribe or follow the podcast and share it with your colleagues. You can also visit us at speechpathologyaustralia.org.au. Thanks for listening and bye for now.